Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. And I'm your other host, Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And welcome to the 209th episode of the Nauticast, titled Secrets and Lies, an analysis of A Storm of Swords, Jamie 7, in which Jamie returns to King's Landing to find his sister ready to kill his brother and his dad preparing to basically disown all of them. Might seem dysfunctional, but these are the Lannisters. We have to grade them on a curve. I'll give them a C+. Could have gone as high as a B if Jamie and Cersei left Joffrey's corpse out of their reunion sex. We see just the sept door close behind Jamie, and then he comes out like pushing Joffrey on a gurney, and then he closes the door again. Immediate, immediate grade <laughs> inflation right there. Spoiler warning, as always, prepare to be spoiled for all five A Song of Ice and Fire novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon, the TV shows. Anything and everything. Our question this episode comes from our patron Travis O, who asks, Hi fellas, loved the show for a long time, happy to be finally able to join the Patreon. Got a maybe weird question for you. Ever since A Game of Thrones, when Robert brings up the idea of running away and becoming the Sword King, I've wondered, assuming a steady state Westeros that doesn't collapse into war, if you needed to assemble an A-team, mastermind, face man, muscle, and wildcard, of notable A Song of Ice and Fire characters who are alive at the start of the story to accomplish, to accomplish an impossible task, who would you pick and why? All right, so who, who, you, who are you sending in, Manu? Who's, who's your A-team for Mace Wolf? All right, uh, we'll start with the mastermind. I'm going to go with Archmaester Marwyn. Um, I feel like I need... Excellent choice. I, need I was about to say, can we pick Marwyn for all four? It seems <laughs> we like, seems like a move. We could. Um, I think if it's an impossible task, as this question promotes, I want to at least have someone <laughs> tapped into the supernatural, and I'm avoiding naming the guy in a tree up north because I have a feeling... That might be on your list, so I want to pick someone different. Um, Very kind. In terms of face man, um, I assume that means someone that kind of leads the team and is the public relations and knows mm-hmm. how to do the aesthetics. I'm picking Marjorie Tyrell, um, so a Genius. face woman in this case. Um, muscle, I'm just going to go with Sandor Clegane. Um, he is vicious when I need him, but he can be very loyal. Um, so I think... Uh, you need muscle you can trust. And I think Sandor could gain if you can, you know, get on his good side. Um, his I, wavelength. Yeah, yeah, I would also say his sober side, but he might even be better drunk. That's true. He's, he's the kind of guy you have to know how to be friends with. And then lastly, for my wild card, not to give away our next episode, but it's got to be Davos. You need a moral rudder to your uh, kind of agenda. And I think he would keep everyone in line. I feel like Davos is the guy. He, he'd be the heart. He's the glue guy. Um, so I think he's got to go as my <laughs> wild card position. Excellent choices all. I love it. And uh, Mastermind, thank you for leaving uh, Blood Raven for me. He'd probably be my mastermind. He's, he's, he's a genius and he's very, he's very canny and very clever and cunning. And he'll, he'll do pretty much anything. So some, you got to have someone to maybe keep an eye on him. Face man, it's tempting to just pick a faceless man. For this one. <laughs> Go with Jock and Hagar. He's nice. He could, he could do good PR. Who would be good for this? Because the, yeah, the Tyrells are great at, 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 uh, at politics and PR. Who else is decent at it? Maybe one, of, maybe a singer, maybe someone like Mance, uh, mm-hmm. even though he's very ordinary looking, which doesn't usually fit the face man. But he's he's very good at at politics and performance and talking to people. Muscle Sandor is a great choice. I think I think a uh, Victorian could be very useful because he he does what people tell him to do, <laughs> except for Euron. But everyone else, he does he does what he does what you tell him to do. So he'll knock down a door for you if if you need him. And then uh, wildcard, so many good choices in the Ace Wolf uh, world specifically. Maybe I'll take a, a leaf from your book on Dragonstone. I'll, I'll go Salador for my wildcard. That's great. 
Never know what he's going to do, but uh, his, his, his ships could really come in handy, assuming he doesn't think he's going to die, because if he does, he'll leave you there. He will run away. So thank you so much to uh, Travis O for the question. If you want to ask us questions, we are forced to answer here on the Nauticast podcast. You can head on over to patreon.com slash Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where our patrons get benefits, including exclusive episodes every month and early access to our regular episodes. And usually here's where I launch into the synopsis, but since this is your golden boy, at least previously golden boy, somewhat golden boy, stay gold, (laughs) Jamie boy. It's a joke somewhere in there. Since Jamie is yours, as usual with Jamie Chapters, the floor is yours. The king is dead, they told him, never knowing that Joffrey was his son as well as his sovereign. Welcome back to the real world, Jamie Lannister, where your son is your king and your king is dead, but how much was he actually your son? And was he killed by your brother? And or his wife? Gods, too many questions, when all he's in the mood for is some ale and sister fucking. Joffrey, my first blood, my firstborn, my son? He tried to bring the boy's face to mind, but his features kept turning into Cersei's. She will be in mourning, her hair in disarray and her eyes red from crying, her mouth trembling as she tries to speak. She will cry again when she sees me, though she'll fight the tears. Hmm... Jamie's thoughts turned really quickly to how beautiful Cersei will be in mourning. I know exactly what George means when he says Jamie rode hard the next day. The stink of King's Landing rises up to meet Jamie and crew. Steel Shanks Walton says he hasn't smelled anything like it, but to Jamie, slimy, mudhole, his home this is. At least it's where his family is, and he'll be seeing them soon. Could my brother truly have killed the boy? Jamie found that hard to believe. He was curiously calm. Men were supposed to go mad with grief when their children died, he knew. They were supposed to tear their hair out by the roots, to curse the gods and swear red vengeance. So why was it he felt so little? The boy lived and died believing Robert Baratheon his sire. Jamie had seen him born, that was true, though more for Cersei than the child. But he had never held him. How would it look? His sister warned him when the women finally left them. Bad enough Joffrey looks like you without you mooning over him. Jamie yielded with hardly a fight. The boy had been a squalling pink thing who demanded too much of Cersei's time, Cersei's love, and Cersei's breasts. Robert was welcome to him, and now he's dead. But Joffrey's not Jamie's only son, nor was his manhood taken by Vargo Hote. He could make more sons, and these ones he will cherish. No more lies, he thinks, as he rides up to Brienne of Truth, or Tarth. Brienne was keeping her distance, once again in attire more suited to her tastes, and back to her pre-Harrenhal sullen silences Jamie knows all too well. He congratulates her for getting him back to King's Landing in mostly one piece. Brienne is insistent that Jamie hold up his end of the bargain, though, except, except, she never met Rob Stark, yet her grief for him runs deeper than mine for Joff, or perhaps it was Lady Catelyn she mourned. They had been at Brindlewood when they heard that news, from a red-faced tub of a knight named Sir Bertram Beesbury, whose arms were three beehives on a field striped black and yellow. Good to see the Beesbury line has kept on despite Kristen Cole introducing Lord Lyman to the small council table nearly 150 years ago. (laughs) It took Jamie some effort to get the full story of the Red Wedding out of some Piper men and put some effort into consoling Brienne, but she's gone dead inside. Hey, just like Jamie. The woman had dropped a rock on Robin Ryger, battled a bear with a tourney sword, bitten off Fargo Hote's ear, and fought Jamie to exhaustion. But she was broken now. Done. 
Jamie offers her a place at court or in the city watch, but you've read A Song of Ice and Fire, you know Brienne, that's not her. Frustrated, Jamie rides on ahead to the Gate of the Gods. Business is booming in King's Landing, apparently, as there is an entry tariff to even set up shop. Under the peace banner, Jamie, Steelshanks, and crew are granted passage up to the Red Keep. Jamie notes how little the city itself seems to be in mourning, little and less even. People seem to go- be going about their days, about their lives. Like the guard at the gate said, things have settled now that Lord Tywin is in charge. Not even a dead king can stop the Lion of the Rock. Anonymity is new to Jamie, writing down streets where once he'd been the most eye-drawing and infamous rogue of the capital. That anonymity accompanies him all the way up to the castle. Only a call-out to his quote-unquote brother, Marin Tran, gets people moving and obeying Jamie like in his old life. As for Jamie's new life, he comes across his newest brothers, appointed without his consent, of course. The night of flowers shone so fine and pure in his white scales and silk that Jamie felt a tattered and tawdry thing by contrast. Jamie turned to Marin Trant. Sir, you've been remiss in teaching our new brothers their duties. What duties? said Marin Trant defensively. Keeping the king alive. How many monarchs have you lost since I left the city? Two, is it? Then Sir Balin saw the stump. Your hand! Jamie made himself smile. I fight with my left now. It makes for more of a contest. Where will I find my lord father? In the solar with Lord Tyrell and Prince Oberyn. Mace Tyrell and the Red Viper breaking bread together? Strange and stranger. Jamie's rendezvous with his family gets delayed when Sir Loras catches eye at Brienne, still thinking her Renly's assassin. Sir Loras draws his steel, and in turn so do the gold cloaks. Jamie is able to talk him down, but not without Riley noting that it took two minutes into his return for everyone to start trying to kill each other. Truly, this face turn is going to take some work. Sir Loras stands by his accusation, though, and to appease the boy, Jamie has Brienne put under arrest in a tower cell, but not without a good word. That doesn't make Brienne any happier, but Jamie is doing her a solid, right? God, poor misunderstood Jamie. Why doesn't she realize him throwing her in a jail is actually a good thing? It's probably Eris's fault. Yes, that'll do. Eris's fault. Jamie meets another one of his new brothers, some kettle black or another, who calls Sir Jamie a cripple and a dwarf before realizing he's dip- disparaging his commanding officer. Is it Sir Jamie? My pardons, my lord. I did not know you. I have the honor to be Sir Osmond Kettleblack. Where's the honor in that, thinks Jamie, as Osmond opens the door to reveal his sister within the sept. Uh, mods? Police? When I asked Emmett to do all the Jamie chapters, I meant the fun ones involving baths and bears and white books. Uh, not the Too weird bad. fucking incest corpse one. Oh, well, let's, let's get this over with. Cersei was kneeling before the altar of the mother. Joffrey's buyer had been laid out beneath the stranger who led the newly dead to the other world. The smell of incense hung heavy in the air, and a hundred candles burned, sending up a hundred prayers. Joffs liked to need every one of them, too. Take Cersei a moment to realize her twin, her brother, her lover, had returned to her. She did not come to him, however. She has never come to me, he thought. She has always waited, letting me come to her. She gives, but I must ask. You should have come sooner, she murmured when he took her in her arms. Why couldn't you have come sooner? To keep him safe. My boy. I came as fast as I could. 
He broke the embrace and stepped back a pace. It's war out there, sister. You look so thin. And your hair, your golden hair. The hair will grow back. Jamie lifted his stump. She needs to see. This won't. Shock grips Cersei first, and then ignorance grips her when Jamie lays the blame at Fargo Hout. She turns back to Joffrey, dressed for death in a style not unlike Jamie's own drip. It's Cersei's turn to lay down blame, this time directed at Tyrion, though Jamie is doubtful that he would kill Joffrey, even if he did say some vile things. Plus, Tyrion knows he wa- he's Jamie's get, and Tyrion would have no reason to harm Jamie. Except for that one thing, though sadly Jamie doesn't go Columbo mode and tell us what that one more thing <laughs> is. Jamie says he'll wait for the trial. Then Cersei kisses him, lightly, but Jamie hungers and kisses back. Not so lightly. He keeps going, despite her protests about the Septons and about the father, both Tywin and the God of the Seven. This whole scene is a thing, so I'm just going to yada yada over it and <laughs> save the rest for our discussion section. After the post-coital cleanup, Cersei calls Jamie out for his folly. Jamie is all, oh, let me show you the meaning of folly, as he proposes to Cersei, offering to wed her and bed her and create more Joffreys. He doesn't care about the throne or the stinky city, he just wants her. Cersei is becoming increasingly unsure about this Jaime that has returned to her and dismisses him. Jaime finds his father alone, missing Oberyn and Mace to Jaime's relief, and Jaime does not proceed to have sex with his father over the corpse of a dead child, much to my own relief. Tywin, as you can expect, acts like Jamie's been there the whole time, though his son is fi- <laughs> finally able to elicit a real emotion when he shoves his stump in Daddy's face. Who did this? If Lady Catelyn thinks... Lady Catelyn held a sword to my throat and made me swear to return her daughters. This was your goat's work. Vargahote, the Lord of Harrenhal. Lord Tywin looked away, disgusted. No longer. Sir Gregor's taken the castle. The sellswords deserted their erstwhile captain almost to a man, and some of Lady Wentz's old people opened a postern gate. Clegane found Hote sitting alone in the hall of a hundred hearse, half mad with a pain and fever from a wound that festered. His ear, I'm told. Jamie had to laugh. Too sweet! His ear! He could scarcely wait to tell Brienne, though the wench couldn't find it half so funny as he did. Topic turns towards Jamie's remaining hand. He lies and says he can use it just as well. But before Tywin can follow up, Jamie turns it back to Joffrey. He inquires further into his death, about Tyrion's culpability and his odds at a fair trial, which are about as good as the Chicago Bears winning the Super Bowl this year. <laughs> Tywin once again brings up Jamie's sword hand, claiming him unfit to serve in the Kingsguard, and hoping he will take up Tywin's place at Casterly Rock instead. With Tommen, perhaps. Hey, Jamie, you can be the dad you wanted to be uh, eight pages ago. Tywin even dangles Marjorie Tyrell as a match. No, Jamie had heard all that he could stand. No more than he could stand. He was sick of it, sick of lords and lies, sick of his father, his sister, sick of the whole bloody business. No, 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 no. How many times must I say it before you'll hear it? I am a knight of the Kingsguard, the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, and that's all I mean to be. Firelight gleamed golden in the stiff whiskers that framed Lord Tywin's face. A vein pulsed in his neck, but he did not speak. And did not speak. And did not speak. The strained silence went on until it was more than Jamie could endure. Father, he began. You are not my son. Lord Tywin turned his face away. You say you are the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard? 
and only that. Very well, sir. Go do your duty. And that is the synopsis for A Storm of Swords, Jamie 7. Woo! That was great, especially at the end there. You nailed it. So this feels almost like Jamie's story is starting over. Or like his A Feast for Crows story is starting early. We're in a different setting. We've gone from Harrenhal to King's Landing. We've got a different set of supporting characters as Brienne is quickly ushered off stage to make room for Jamie's relatives and his fellow Kingsguard knights. We've got a whole new set of stakes and challenges. As Jamie's story goes from pure survival mode to, what else, the Game of Thrones, in which he has to find a way to integrate himself into a new political status quo. But of course, everything that came before informs what happens here. You could argue that this chapter, more than any other Jamie chapter in the book so far, is where we really get to reckon with the ways Jamie has changed and not changed, because he's, he's back with something familiar. The people and places of his old life are a measuring stick, something constant against which we can understand his evolution. What did you think of it, sir? Jamie Lannister is George's shot across the bow in A Storm of Swords, kicking off this book with a new point of view, a point of view belonging to ostensibly a villain in the reader's eyes. The deepening complexity and moral disorientation of the saga overall is made manifest in Jamie's story, who may be the most difficult point of view thus far for the audience to embrace. Forgetting Theon here for a second, which is fair because <laughs> everyone forgets Theon. <laughs> who? <laughs> exactly. Jamie has gone through his crucible already, and the man who has emerged from the other side of Varga Hote and Harrenhal almost reflects the knight in shining armor as he first appeared on page. But now Jamie is back in King's Landing, and his sister, his father, and his past all come rushing back with extreme messiness, which will in turn set up the ending to a Jamie's A Storm of Swords arc, where he will quite literally turn the page and look to the future. Jamie's adventures in the Riverlands have been a reprieve from the familial and court politics that have dominated his life. It is in this reprieve that we, the reader, met him amongst Boltons and Briennes and Bears. Oh my. We've ridden with Jamie for six chapters removed from other Lannisters, allowing his character to grow, and dare I say flourish, when separated from them. But that part is over, the crucible as I've been calling it, and now he's returned home, to his family, to his seat of power, to his official 9 to 5. It was easy to cheer on Jamie when he's saving Brienne or sticking it to Vargo Hote, but like his little brother Tyrion, we now have to reconcile fun road trip Jamie with his family. He's thought about them much throughout A Storm of Swords, even dreamed of them, but as we all know, real life is often more disappointing. The chapter opens on the lines, The King is dead. Only after that does Jamie refer to Joffrey as his son. This is deliberate, as Joffrey was more sovereign than progeny to Jamie, his only real connection to the boy being through Cersei, and as we'll see, she ensured there was no deeper connection. And Jamie doesn't even pretend for it to be otherwise. He outwardly states he'd prefer to recover his right hand over his firstborn. There's a void, an emptiness, dare I say, a phantom pain, if you will, where there should have been some relationship to his son, or really any of his children. By whatever rights I have, I'm going to judge the wolf and the lion here. More accurately, I want to compare Jamie and Ned, as Jamie's relationship to Joffrey is, excuse the phrasing, a bastardized version of Ned and Jon Snow's, very close to the inverse, in fact. Ned claimed John as his own, despite John not being his, whereas Jamie never claimed his actual son Joffrey. The former raised John as if he were his own with as much love as Ned could afford, and, well, Jamie spent all his love on Cersei and had little left to spare elsewise. 
Joffrey reigned visibly as King of Westeros with a dubious, non-existent claim, whereas Jon Snow is shuttled off to the edge of the world with his superior claim to the Iron Throne. The funny thing is, though, both styles support the same end, to protect the children. Granted, Ned actually loved Jon, and Jaime's only staying away from Joffrey for Cersei's sake, but in the end, these were the paths both men chose, and both chose to honor their sisters. The things we do for love, indeed. And just to be clear, none of this is to say that, oh wow, Jamie actually rocks. It's to create a dialectic <laughs> between Ned and Jamie. I think two characters who will forever be in conversation with each other and synthesizing as much meaning as we can from that comparison. I really like that. George's prying apart fatherhood and parenthood, showing us that there's a difference between creating a child and raising one. Ned is almost certainly not John's <laughs> biological father, but he is John's actual father. Look at how often John thinks about Ned, tries to live up to his image of Ned. Whereas Jamie is Joffrey's biological father, but as he thinks, Joffrey lived and died believing Robert was his father, which is really more important. Even if Tywin is not Tyrion's biological father, he raised Tyrion in his own image. Like Tyrion says at the end of the book, I'm you writ small, which matters way more than whose sperm was involved. There is no such emotional weight between Jamie and Joffrey. So of course Jamie feels nothing. What did he lose? There's no great memories he has of Joffrey that he thinks back on tearful. Now he tries to and he realizes, oh, footage not found. <laughs> All I can think of is Cersei. It's this, this disconnect and alienation from his old life as he realizes it wasn't much of a life at all. He was kind of sleepwalking through it. Part of that is, is trauma from everything that happened with Eris, but part of it was also is that it was easy. It was convenient, and there was no, no incentive until now to do otherwise. He has no real family of his own. His children aren't his children, but he also has no real connection to duty. He has, he has nothing to come home to. He has to kind of kind of make it up over his next couple of chapters. He's sick of lies, he thinks to himself, which is kind of the big motif, the big theme of the chapter. He'll say it out loud with both Cersei and Tywin. Jamie used to take refuge in the lies, in the world's hypocrisy. Everyone's just a liar. They're all shallow. They all judge me, but they don't know the truth, so I don't have to take them seriously. And that is no longer working as a strategy. That's not comforting Jamie anymore. How the world feels about him is starting to hurt, and he wants something worth believing in, which is why he invests himself so strongly in the image of knighthood in this chapter specifically. Speaking of comparisons that make Jamie look bad, even Brienne <laughs> seems to be mourning the loss of Rob Stark more than Jamie, his own child. That news, as Jamie calls it, has hit Brienne especially hard, and he rightly figures it's mostly Catelyn for whom she weeps. Jamie immediately jumps into the Bolton history of flaying Starks, which to me means Jamie is under no illusions about Roose's involvement in the Red Wedding. Mm -hmm. So it's not just Jamie's Riverland sojourn that is over, it is also Brienne's. In a way, between Catelyn Stark and later Jamie, she was able to open up herself in a way that she so rarely does. Granted, some of that was forced upon her in captivity, but Brienne forged some real human bonds with people who came to see her not how as she ought to be, but how they are. Returning to King's Landing, the court life that she's known all her life is a return to the fringe for her, to being closed off to others, to being mocked behind her back, and sometimes to her face. Jamie knows she deserves more than this and that she's capable of so much more than this, which will be a motivating factor of him setting her loose in search of Sansa Stark instead of finding her a place at court or in the city guard, positions she'd resent after not very long. 
Yeah, that's a good point. How it's kind of phrased in the moment is Jamie saying Sansa is my last chance for honor, but it's also just something for Brienne to do where she'll feel like she's doing the right thing. And those, those are, you know, few and far between. Brienne is always in a tenuous position, though, because she's just never fully accepted anywhere. The only time she had a status all her own was as Renly's bodyguard, very briefly. And even then, she was clearly resented by Loras and the others. And then she swore her service to Catelyn, but there was no clear future there. Like, Brienne could theoretically be Renly's bodyguard until she dies, that's the gig. But when she serves Catelyn, like, Brienne has no land or title coming her way from Rob, and it's it's not like an official Kingsguard, so there's no guarantee of permanent service. And then Catelyn puts Brienne in the very difficult position of escorting Jaime. Difficult not only because of how dangerous it turned out to be, but also because it made Brienne into a traitor in the eyes of everyone who works for Rob. Even if even if uh, Catelyn and everyone else was still alive, if Brienne went back to Riverrun now, pretty much everyone but Catelyn would hate her. And now she's totally adrift, with no clear next step. Brienne defines herself by devotion. She devoted herself to Renly, she devoted herself to Catelyn, and now she has no one to devote herself to, except, except maybe Jaime, and even then, that only works halfway. That leaves her with no identity at all. And that's a reflection of Jamie's own status. He doesn't feel at home here either, and he has no identity he feels comfortable in outside the Kingsguard. And again, we see the Jamie-Brienne relationship kind of kind of prying open that gap between Jamie's uh, thoughts and his actions. We've seen that from the very start of Jamie's POV story at the end of his first chapter when he thought, I should just hit Brienne in the face with this oar and end it right here. And then suddenly he found himself handing the oar to her in a way that even he didn't seem to understand. And we see that here when he thinks of Brienne as just the, uh, the wench is just the least companionable creature. Well, okay, then why do you keep talking to her if you hate talking to her so much? A lot of what's going on in terms of why Jamie can't be honest with himself about how he feels about Brienne is, is, has to do, I think, with, with gender roles, about being uncomfortable with how much they have in common. Jamie, Jamie thinking about how he's not a proper man because he's not showing grief for his sons. That's what he thinks. So a, a man is supposed to tear his shirt and rage. And where did Jamie get that idea? It's kind of in the ambient culture around him. And now he's not living up to it. He tries to encourage Brienne, hey, you, you kept your vow to bring me here, he says, which is something he brings up repeatedly in his next couple chapters. He thinks this is really meaningful. Brienne ultimately did it. I mean, not really, in that the last half of Jamie's journey was he was guarded by 200 soldiers, and Jamie had to go rescue Brienne, but, you know, the, the spirit is there. But Brienne, you know, she, she cuts off any path forward when she says she's, she's not going to join the city guard or anything else because I will not serve with oathbreakers and murderers, which is kind of how Jamie feels about the Kingsguard now. As he thinks in his next chapter, I just uh, kicked open the door and let the vermin crawl in. He could easily ask himself this same question that he asks about Brienne. Why did you ever strap on a sword if you were never going to serve with bad people? Well, same is true for Jamie. Why did he join the Kingsguard if, if, he's, if this is how the world works? And Brienne forces him to if not deal with the contradiction, at least acknowledge it as a contradiction. He forces him past stasis, and again, yeah, weighing that gap between Jamie's thoughts, his words, and his actions, which I think is one of the mo most interesting parts of his POV. Agreed. To be fair to Jamie's lack of mourning Joffrey, the people of King's Landing seem to have even less sadness over the death of their king. <laughs> he is not alone. And fair enough. <laughs> turns, out <business> is, <laughs> turns out business is good in spite of regicide. Tariffs are being collected to trade within the city walls, and merchants are lining up to do just that. Wartime has a tendency to move capital around. The Italian wars famously moved the center of European commerce in the early 16th century up to the lowlands of northern Europe, and that shift of economic gravity shapes European politics even to this day. 
But as we will see in A Feast for Crows, it's not just businessmen moving into the city. It'll be refugees and poor fellows and others who have no other place to go besides the city. While the stench of King's Landing is familiar to Jamie, Jamie's new look is not familiar to the denizens of the city. They have a new Kingslayer now, and a Kinslayer to boot. His own sworn brothers don't even recognize him, or at least the ones who are still serving. Like I said during the Purple Wedding itself, the big joke of Joffrey's death is that it doesn't really change anything. Not compared to Rob's death, which really changed everything. As the gate captain says, the Bolton soldiers aren't the first ones turning up to make peace, aka beg Tywin not to kill them. That's, that's how much of an impact Rob's death had. But with Joffrey, King's Landing is moving on. The war is basically over, and people can get back to the pleasures of peacetime, drinking, fucking, and making money. The problem isn't political, at least not until Oberyn gets involved. It's personal. The problem for Jamie is that no one recognizes him, a blunt way of illustrating the changes his journey is putting him through. As he says, he is both amused and annoyed by that. On one hand, no one recognizing him means they can't judge him, which is his least favorite thing, so that's good. On the other hand, this means Jamie's not famous anymore. And he kind of got used to that, even if it was more infamous after a while. Celebrity, I think, has the same advantage and disadvantage. Everyone knows who you are. That means you're always under the microscope, always being judged, which again is what Jamie hated. But it also meant he didn't have to think too hard about who he was and what he wanted. He's the Kingslayer, a storybook villain who presumably wants a bunch of storybook villain things. Now he doesn't even have that anymore, because Tyrion is the Kingslayer now. The role of the Kingslayer, this social pariah, it's like Renly's ghost. It's a, a mask anyone can wear. Jamie has wrestled for years with contempt, the judgment he saw in Ned Stark's eyes the day Jamie became the Kingslayer. Now he's facing something else entirely, indifference, which means he has to actively choose how he presents himself, who he's going to be socially. Jamie snaps back into the Westerosi hierarchy pretty quickly, though, asserting himself once again as Lord Commander and dressing down his fellow Kingsguard almost immediately. He lays the death of two kings in his absence on them, and is quick to resent Cersei for appointing white swords without his consent. That's before commenting that they seem an unimpre unimpressive lot at that. Sir Loras accepted, we'll get back to him. One does wonder if Jamie would have the same vigor for politics if he hadn't been transformed on his Riverland adventures. Maybe he just comes back and fucks Cersei and slips back into his old smiling nightstick like before. But as we'll see by chapter's end, there does appear to be a new cause celeb in the Kingslayer, a desire to do something worthwhile, even if it's just, you know, as a joke or to do a gotcha on all the people who snickered behind his back. Of course, while we know what Jamie has gone through, the rest of King's Landing does not. He arrives at the Red Keep, and all of a sudden swords are drawn all over the place, and from an outside observer, it just looks like, oh, the shitty Kingslayer is back, and now everyone wants to kill each other again. So it goes. <laughs> Which hints at Jamie's path going forward. Not one of redemption, but one where he reconciles his outward image of violence and past sins to the growth we've been tracking internally. Of course, this isn't wholesale transformation, as Jamie Lannister's sardonic charm remains potent as ever, as does his belief that he is roundly misunderstood by all his peers, including his sister and his father. Yeah, it's not that Jamie rides into King's Landing determined to remake himself as Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. More that he needs a new identity. He needs to plug himself into something, and LC of the KG just happens to be his job now. In this chapter, and even more so the next one, George uses the other Kingsguard as a challenge for Jamie in the same way he uses Brienne, just a, a little less romantically. 
Not unromantically, as we'll see with Loris, but just a little less romantically. Jamie is forced to respond to them. He has to. They work for him. And we learn more about him in the process. And since Jamie is such a, a cagey, slippery POV, again, the gap between thoughts, words, and actions, and because he's in a state of transition, these are useful moments. They're re- revealing moments about Jamie. First up is Marin Trant, everyone's favorite child abuser, whose conduct Jamie will directly address next time. Here, though, Jamie is just happy to be recognized and obeyed by someone, no matter how bad they are. After all, as Jamie thinks, he doesn't look the part of a knight anymore, not compared to Loris Terrell, aka young Jamie. And Jamie has to overcompensate because he lost his sword hand. Just look at how Balin Swan reacts, horrified by it. And he's the one in the Kingsguard who respects Jamie the most, and he's reacting that way. Again, this is in part about gender performance. Jamie has to be extra manly to make his new job work, but he has lost the part of himself he used to establish dominance. He has to talk, like Tyrion, rather than just fight. And that immediately gets put to the test when Loras sees Brienne. Everything comes back to kingslaying. Joffrey is dead, Rob is dead, Jamie killed Eris, Loras thinks Brienne killed Renly. These are core challenges not only to the power of the kings, but to the identities of the individual people involved. These are the moments where these people prove who they are, because they live and die for loyalty. Loras immediately drops the pretense of being Tommen's Kingsguard, because in his heart of hearts, he loved Renly and wanted to guard him for the rest of their lives. So he'll kill Brienne for that, even though Renly was a traitor in the eyes of the Lannister regime, to which Loras has now pledged his life. Like Jaime, Loras is torn between his personal desires and the dictates of duty. Even as he prepares to kill Brienne in defiance of Jamie, he keeps telling her to draw her sword first. Because even in his fury, Loras knows that if he kills an unarmed woman, he will be rightly seen as a murderer, no true knight at all. That's part of what made Rob's death so awful. He couldn't fight back. He had put up his sword. Same with Renly, as Jamie asks Loras later, how do you fight a shadow? Jamie is once again in the position of defending Brienne as he did at the bear pit. And once again, he can only do it because people take him more seriously than they take her. Jamie can only protect Brienne as the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. And that guy, by definition, has to be able to fight. So he's put into this position where he has to pretend like he's still the man he was. He's still a badass. Power resides where people believe it resides, and Jamie is hyper-conscious over his next few chapters that any of the other Kingsguard, even Boros Blount, could easily kick his ass. Jamie talks a big game here, but if Loras actually pushed the point, Jamie wouldn't stand a chance, and he knows it. His power only comes from Balin Swan telling Loras to obey Jamie, because Balin Swan thinks Jamie's in charge, and from everyone else drawing their swords. Without realizing it, Jamie has entered the political realm by necessity, playing a game he could always just cut through before. Look at how it plays out. Loras calms down just enough to charge Brienne with a crime, making this a legal and political matter rather than just a straight fight. So now Jamie can't just threaten Loras into compliance, he has to play that game. He locks Brienne up in a tower. Ah, fairy tale princess in a tower, waiting rescue from her knight in shining armor. Except Jamie is doing that to protect Brienne from the ultimate knight in shining armor, Loras Tyrell. And yet Brienne still looks hurt as they take her away. Oh, why does everyone misunderstand me? Jamie asks himself. The central question of his story, at least as far as he's concerned. He brings it all back to the Kingslaying. Which is partially true. That's definitely why everyone assumes the worst of him. That's why Brienne assumed the worst of him when they first met. But that's not all of it. Jamie is using his bad rep as an excuse to not think any deeper about that all-important gap between his words, thoughts, and actions. He's still calling Brienne a wench and denigrating her intelligence in front of other people, while also thinking that she ought to be blowing him kisses. Again, that 
that sexual and romantic element that Jamie doesn't even seem fully aware of. Ironically, Jamie isn't just misunderstood by other people. He misunderstands himself, unwilling to accept that he's attracted to Brienne, forcing himself to think and speak of her as the wench instead, trapping her in a gender role so he can feel more secure in his own. The reality is that Brienne is hurt because Jamie isn't sticking up for her. He's not telling Loras that he's wrong. Does she matter to him or not? And then we get Osmond Kettleblack, who quickly becomes Jamie's least favorite of his fellow Kingsguard. It's not an accident that Jamie meets him guarding Cersei, as Tyrion will later tell Jamie they're fucking. Even here, this goes about as poorly as you can imagine, with Osmond mocking and threatening Jamie while Jamie can't even pretend to play nice, because unlike Loris Tyrell and Balin Swan from their noble houses, Jamie has no clue who this Joker even is, let alone how he got a white cloak. But even though Osmond deeply embarrasses himself in front of his new boss, the joke is still on Jamie. Because once again, no one recognizes him. No one knows who he is. And now he doesn't even have Brienne. Cersei clearly didn't mean it when she put Jamie in charge of the Kingsguard. It was just another extension of her own power. She staffed it without him. And I get that she needed to because, you know, he was in jail. But all of this sets him up negatively. All of this prepares him to reunite with her in the worst possible way. Excellent stuff, sir. Well, thank you. Really love walking through all the Kingsguard and how they're a reflection of how shitty Jamie is. Well, that's, that's all we're going to talk about next Jamie's chapter. That's all that chapter is. <laughs> so on to Jamie's family now. First up, his twin sister and lover, Cersei, mourning over Joffrey, who, as Jamie notes, will need all the help he can get to make it into any one of the Seven Heavens. Cersei has been a lingering presence in Jamie's point of view since the first chapter of this book, but we've only seen him interact with her memory and whatever you want to call the apparition in his Weirwood dream. Now these two interact in the flesh. She never comes to me, he thinks. She gives, I must ask. While we are only getting one side of this relationship for now, this fits in line with everything Jamie has been saying all book. Despite being twins, she is the first among equals, so to speak. Despite Jamie having a sword and knighthood and commanding armies, it has always been his wishes subjugated to hers. Just like you pointed out with the Kingsguard, it's more an extension of her power than any of his actual command. And though Jamie does come to her, it's not without staking out his own position first. He shows her his hand. It's a small thing, but there's an attempt to assert who he is, perhaps more so than he has ever done with her before. This gets compounded when he doubts Cersei's tale that Tyrion killed their son, with a blink and you'll miss it mention about that one time that gives Tyrion a reason to hurt Jaime, and he won't just be doing her bidding as she had hoped. This is such a crucial scene, because here is the goal of Jaime's quest. Here is why he bothered cutting a deal with Catelyn at all. Here's why he forced himself to survive after losing his hand. It was all to get back to Cersei. And the imagery reflects the intensity of this moment from his POV. We've gone from the dirty city streets to candlelight reflecting off armor and glittering jewels. It's as if the rest of the world has fallen away. There's only the two of them in that sept back together. Or at least that's what it's supposed to feel like. But Jamie starts to realize that something is wrong. And what he realizes here for what seems like the first time is that Cersei does not care what he wants or thinks or fears or any of it. She assumes that she knows he wants her as he's always wanted her, and she never even thought that how he wants her or why might change. 
Tywin feels the same way, as we'll see later in the chapter. It never occurred to either of them that Jamie might, you know, have an independent thought every now and then. <laughs> and this is despite the fact that the thing Jamie is famous for is killing his boss. But they never think he would ever rebel against them. My boy is how Cersei describes Joffrey. Our boy, Jamie thinks. Now, Jamie just thought that Joffrey wasn't really his son. This isn't actually about Joffrey. He's just the mute witness, like when Cersei and Jamie meet in front of Tywin's corpse at the start of the next book. This is about Jamie feeling like he's nothing but a pawn in Cersei's game, that she thinks of him as property, which is how she thought of Joffrey. He was my boy, could never be our boy, because, like you say, we're not equal partners in this. She mourns his hair, Jamie's golden hair, because without it, he looks less like her. There's that element of mutual narcissism in their relationship that Jamie can no longer live up to. George shows us the rot in Jamie's relationships with Cersei and Tywin by focusing it, in both cases, through the question of what to do with Tyrion, the absent member of the family. Both Cersei and Tywin hate Tyrion, although Tywin dresses it up in legalese a little to sound good, maintain his self-image as a reasonable guy, but Jamie doesn't hate Tyrion. Quite the opposite, he loves Tyrion, which has always made him different in Tyrion's eyes, the only relative, the only close relative anyway, who treated him like one. Jaime has protected Tyrion when he can, when he, he felt that he could, but there's a limit to that, and now he is finally being brought up against that limit. He can't just sit by passively even anymore like he used to. Cersei is telling him to actively kill Tyrion. The horror here for Jaime is not only in the act, but in how casually Cersei is asking, how clearly she thinks he'll just say yes. What does that say about what she thinks of him and their relationship? Nothing good. Tyrion is nothing more than a twisted little monster to Cersei, that's what she calls him. Well then, who is Jaime to her, now that his head is shaved and his hand is missing? And there's an interesting ambiguity here where Jaime has changed, but I think is also just seeing clearly how things have always been between them. I also want to quickly highlight the blank looks Cersei gives Jaime when he mentions Vargo Hode. Cersei is oblivious to some of the tools in which her father and family have used to secure their stature. Part of this is compartmentalization under patriarchy, often keeping the women away from the violence done by their own regime. Not to make Cersei seem innocent in all this, she may in fact be the most violent woman in all of Westeros, <laughs> but it's worth highlighting how power, and power in a feudal patriarchy like that of Westeros, is able to create separations from violence that allow the system to per uh, perpetuate. Of course, I say all this, Jamie has turned a corner, Jamie is different, Jamie won't put up with Cersei anymore stuff, more as a pointer towards where our Jamie discussions are going to go, but here, we got some incest fucking on a corpse to cover or at least mention, we're going to circle back to most of this in our discussion section today. Cersei and Jaime often spoke of their love as if it's natural law, as if it was the only way the gods would have it, that the two of them would be together in every way, from birth to death. While sexual appetite is indeed basic to all humans, George explicitly phrases it as Jaime's hunger, as if it's the first level on his hierarchy of needs. Jaime becomes deaf to Cersei's protests, consumed by that hunger. There is a very real concept of active consent during intercourse, and despite Cersei starting it off with a kiss and eventually encouraging Jamie by the end, it is by no means a 100% for sure consensual encounter here. And we are limited to only Jamie's point of view with no access to Cersei's interiority. Some may point to the fact that Cersei doesn't bring this up as an assault later on, which isn't really that convincing on its own, in part because George may have just not written that. Again, way more about this scene in the discussion section. 
post-coitally, they quickly pick themselves up, mainly for Cersei's fear of being discovered. It is at this point, even though Jaime is going to verbatim repeat Cersei's words about the Targaryens, that a real rift can be seen forming between the twins. Jaime had kept pretty much everything about himself tucked away deep inside, except for his pride, but after that bath in Harrenhal, he doesn't seem interested in maintaining the lies he has all these years. The interior wants to become the exterior, or at the very least, no longer wants to fester in the depths of Jamie's heart. This is really where we see the impact of Jamie's journey on his psychology. His jaded irony and nihilism no longer protect him. He lost that armor with his hand. And while he still falls back on sarcastic one-liners, it's clear to both him and the reader that he's faking it. He gets what he wants in this scene. He gets what he was longing for all the way through the Riverlands. He gets back to Cersei. They reunite. They have sex. But there's no meaning in it for him. The hiding no longer feels sexy in a dangerous way. It just feels tawdry and kind of juvenile. Jamie is more self-aware about all this than he used to be. He's more humiliated when he thinks to himself, oh, the sept could have caught fire and I never would have noticed. And you can tell he just, he feels kind of bad about that. Jamie is desperate to find that meaning. He's desperate for a relationship he can live out in public, like it's who he really is. And I think it's hard to separate that from the time he spent with Brienne. She kind of uh, sparked that, that desire in him. Jamie's actual plan is delusional, of course. Let's let's get married and take Tommen back to rule Casterly Rock while Tywin takes the Iron Throne. And just just every word of that is wrong. It's hard to say which <laughs> part of that is the craziest part. Neither the lords nor the small folk would go along with any of it. It's a recipe for disaster. And certainly certainly Tywin is not is not going along with that. <laughs> it's this suicidal romanticism that leads Cersei to declare that Jamie has changed, which I think is important that it's not Jamie's reluctance to kill Tyrion. It's, it's nothing about a knighthood or the king's guard. I mean, Jamie brings all that up, but what makes Cersei say, no, you've changed, is that Jamie is no longer willing to keep their secrets, their big secret. He is, he's visibly unhappy, and Cersei is just not used to that. And then there's old Daddy Lannister. <laughs> In fact, for the book reader, the very first time we are seeing Jamie and Tywin together. If there is any gravity to this long-awaited encounter, Tywin is entirely unaffected. He makes it clear that he had been in touch with Bolton from Jamie's days at Harrenhal, and even hints at how the Spicers, ostensibly Stark allies before the Red Wedding, were involved in the manhunt for Jamie after Catelyn set him free. Oh, and he mentions a plum, which should also pique reader interest with the introduction of Brown Ben not a few chapters ago. This isn't to say that there is a complex conspiracy linking all these plots to Danny, but rather a Byzantine web of family and feudal allegiances that necessarily fissure and fracture under the auspices of war and conquest. In the moments with his father, I get a sense that Jamie is losing his taste for violence, or perhaps just not the same appetite he formerly had. I'm not saying he's moved on to pacifism, he still rejoices at Hote's festering gear, and won't extricate himself from the larger system of violence which he will enforce in the next book. But he takes no pleasure in Gregor Clegane going all Leopold II on the goat of Kohor, and him passing right over Tywin's segue about a new sword may be a wink from the author that Jaime is no longer interested in studying the blade. Like with Cersei, Jaime asserts himself to his father to a degree he likely doesn't do often, leading to an explosion of no's pushing back on all of Tywin's machinations of holding Casterly Rock, raising Tommen as his quote-unquote ward, <laughs> or of marrying to secure alliances. He just wants to be a knight, not unlike Bran, not unlike Sir Dantos' last chapter. And all that gets him is silence and dismissal. 
For the first time in his life, Jamie Lannister is taking something seriously, and the world will not have it. Yes, but yeah, the world and especially his dad. This is this is yeah, this is the only Tywin Jamie scene. And it's really the only extended scene showing Tywin from a POV other than Tyrion. Like Arya sees Tywin from a distance at Heron Hall, Sansa sees him come back and when his horse takes the big dump uh, after the Blackwater, but those are again, those are at a distance. That's not what those uh, POVs, those chapters are focused on. This is really the the most time we spend with Tywin. Uh, from anyone's eyes except Tyrion, and so it's revealing as a as a window into Tywin's relationships and his overall plan. Unlike Tywin's relationship with Tyrion, unlike Jaime's relationship with Cersei, this relationship in this scene, the one between Tywin and Jaime, this is one where it seems like neither of them has given it much thought over the years. They've both just kind of taken each other for granted, which is why Tywin greets him that way, like he just saw him at breakfast, because you get the sense that's how Tywin's always treated Jamie. We don't we don't ever flash back to when Jamie and Tywin meet after the King Slaying, but I'm betting Tywin just said, Jamie, like nothing had happened. I'm betting it was exactly <laughs> the same way. And Jamie has always knuckled under to Tywin because he's dad. He's the dad. He's got that that Vito Logan energy. You do what he says because he rules your life. Jamie was never, as far as we can tell, on the direct end of abuse like Tyrion, nor were his options as visibly constrained from the get-go as Cersei's. Tywin, it seems like, ruled Jamie mostly through implication. They didn't really have any direct conflicts, with one major exception, Jamie joining the Kingsguard. That was the moment Jamie broke from Tywin's expectations for him, which Tywin seems to think of as unforgivable. That decision hangs over this conversation because Tywin's goal here is to basically bully Jamie into taking that decision back. Tywin has always thought of Jamie as his heir, clearly, the eldest male child, the golden handsome warrior, the one who will carry on the legacy of making the Lannisters so strong and fearsome that no one will laugh at them like they did at Tywin's dad. But then Jamie betrayed that legacy to join the Kingsguard. And not only does that make Tywin mad, but they can't talk honestly about why Jamie did it, which of course was for Cersei. I do think, as I've said before, that Tywin knows the truth on some level. Like, yeah, when he, when he wants to make Tom and Jamie's ward, that I think is as close <laughs> as he can get to acknowledging it. But also, I think Tywin doesn't, he just doesn't care why Jamie joins the Kingsguard or why he might want to stay. Like, like with Cersei, it does not matter to Tywin what Jamie wants. And when uh, Tywin sees that Jamie's lost his hand, he immediately blames the Starks, which Cersei does too. And that's, it's even more telling with Tywin because he, he doesn't want to face that it was his own pet monsters who did this. And it was the incentives of the Game of Thrones, as Roose said about Vargo Hote. He was just playing the game. And there's that great little moment where Jamie is, is so happy, just over the moon, that the ear wound Brienne gave Vargo Hote festered. And he even wants to tell Brienne about it, which, come on, that's a sign of true love right there. That, that eagerness to share experiences when you, you hear something cool and, oh, I gotta tell them right away. But Jamie knows that Brienne won't find it funny. And it turns out Jamie doesn't find it all that funny either when he hears how Gregor has been torturing Vargo. As with Sansa crying for Joffrey's death in our last episode, it turns out these acts of violence don't bring justice or even satisfaction to the victims. All Tywin can offer Jamie as recompense for his hand is saying, we'll kill them all, all the members, everyone. Just a pile of heads, and it, it feels so impotent. And while Tywin is responsible for unleashing Vargo on Westeros, and therefore indirectly responsible for what happened to Jamie. Tywin is also responsible for unleashing Gregor Clegane, the guy he sent to kill Vargo. All of the blood flows from Dad. And now that violence is turning inward within House Lannister. I mean, it kind of always has for Tyrion, but now it's affecting the rest of them too. Like I said, Tywin talks in a more clinical, detached way than Cersei. 
but the loathing for Tyrion is still there under the surface, disguised by Tywin claiming to be acting neutrally on behalf of the king's justice. Jaime keeps poking holes in that, pointing out that if Tyrion was the killer, he'd have been less obvious about it, and when Police Chief Tywin says that the innocent have nothing to fear from him, Jaime can only think that anyone can be made guilty if you find witnesses willing to lie, and there are a lot of those in King's Landing. There's a, this interesting little bit where, where Jamie tries to blame Stannis instead, which is funny. Just everyone has their little theory about, about who killed Joffrey, and no one realizes who it actually was. Uh, but Jamie is really just trying to deflect it, uh, energy and attention from Tyrion. And Stannis is very useful. He's this kind of perpetual boogeyman for the Lannisters over the next couple books, where they can kind of frame him for anything they might be up to or that they don't know what's going on with it. Uh, and so we, the, the conversation builds. Yeah, like you said, it's this great, steadily simmering conversation, slowly builds, and we start getting this, uh, this interrupting back and forth. Uh, they, they start cutting each other off in the middle of sentences, and that, that just builds the momentum, and it shows us that they're, they're really talking past each other, that Jamie and Tywin are kind of having two very different conversations, and neither of them is really listening to each other. And then, yes, it, it finally explodes into just operatic rage as Jamie fully vents everything he has kept simmering underneath this whole chapter. Not this, not this whole chapter, a much longer time than that, as he starts to realize here. And it's very revealing that Jamie uh, brings up uh, Catelyn kicking a pail of his own shit at him. I'm tired of highborn ladies kicking over pails of shit. Now, Tywin wasn't there. Like, if we were in his head at that moment, he'd be like, what? <laughs> he has no idea what Jamie's talking about. But the reader does. Again, Jamie can no longer take refuge in his self-image as the bold truth-teller in a world of hypocrites, which we also saw with Sandor. And so now Tywin finally lays out his master plan in full, what he thinks is going to happen as he dies. He's going to be sending Jamie back to the rock to raise Tommen. And you know, so far, that's also Jamie's plan. Right? <laughs> Jamie was going to go back to the rock. Jamie was going to He said Tommen can rule Casterly Rock. The difference is Cersei. Once again, Tywin wants to split up his children, put a continent between them like when he quit being Hand and took Cersei home to the Rock, leaving Jaime to guard Aerys, just like when they were kids and uh, Joanna caught them going at it and split up their bedrooms. Cersei refused to marry Jaime earlier in the chapter, and now Tywin plans to marry her off to someone else. And Jaime is, 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 is so furious at that, and yet he also doesn't want to leave the Kingsguard to marry Cersei either, because... I get the sense that if he, Jamie feels like if he leaves the Kingsguard now, then they were, they were always right about him, and none of this was worth it, and it's all been a farce, and he just can't tolerate that. And it's it's also very revealing that when Jamie gives his big no speech to Tywin, he responds first to the attempt to marry off Cersei, showing off how little he can really think ahead. Like obviously Cersei was always going to be married off again by Tywin, and just shows off how they're again they're not really communicating, and Jamie's not even thinking about his own future because. Because I think Jamie has never really had a future that he wants. He doesn't really know where he wants to be in 10 years, 20 years when he's an old man. And it's not said explicitly, but you get the impression that neither Jamie nor Tywin ever broached this topic about whether Jamie would ever leave the Kingsguard and become the heir to the rock again. Just as Tyrion thought earlier in the book, he never pressed the point about whether he would be made the heir. At the end of the chapter, even beyond Jamie's own character arc, and this is really important for that, it's really important for Tywin's characterization. That this, I think, is the ultimate demonstration of his unseriousness as a politician, despite his reputation and the self-image he maintains. Like, this was all for the glorious Lannister legacy that's going to last longer than him, but he never really raised an heir. He never really set up someone for whom all this bloodshed was for. And he snaps as soon as someone defies him. As soon as it's so quick, like when Jamie says, I don't want Marjorie Terrell and I don't want your rock. And Tywin says, you are my son. 
And then Jamie says, I'm the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, that's all I mean to be. And then Tywin says, you are not my son. Like a paragraph between those two opposite statements. And I get it was devastating to hear from Jamie that he's Lord Commander and only that. But it, again, that shows, I think, how unserious Tywin is, that he could... He could throw away his master plan in a moment because he can't stand being talked back to and told he's wrong. And that, I think, that is the core of Tywin that I think undercuts the, uh, the Machiavellian mastermind reputation that he creates around himself. So, uh, moving into foreshadowing and groundwork, we hear early on in the chapter that Mace, Tyrell, and Oberyn are eating with Tywin. We don't actually see them. Jamie is glad to see they've left the room before he shows up. But what they're, they're probably talking about is together the three of them being judges at Tyrion's trial. So when that comes up in the next Tyrion chapter, you got to assume that's, that's what they were establishing here. Tywin was ask, asking them to, to help out. Both Cersei and Tywin mentioned that they had brought Sansa Stark's maids in for questioning, which of course will lead to Shay being one of the witnesses at the trial. Um, a little bit of a departure from the television show, which had one of Cersei's spies spotting Shay, and that's kind of how she gets wrapped up in all this. Right, but it looks true. like in the books, this is just straight up a kind of questioning, and it might even be Cersei bribing a little uh, or trying to push Shay a little in a certain direction. But um, it's a little more. It seems like it was found out in the discovery process for the trial. <laughs> As opposed to uh, spycraft as in the show. Exactly. Which is, you can only imagine what that must have been like. That they were, they had no idea what secret Shay had. Imagine Cersei's, Cersei's eyebrows raising as Shay starts spilling the beans. <laughs> like, you're the perfect witness. Okay, just stay right there. Uh, you mentioned it earlier in uh, in the episode, but uh, Jamie says he he was always nice to Tyrion. Tyrion would never resent him, except for that one time, which is it's one of those details where George knows that the first time reader is not going to make a big deal out of that because it's not f- lingered on. We're focused on other things in the chapter, but on reread that stands out. Major red flag that we're gonna we're gonna find out what that one time is, which of course was that Jamie uh, lied to Tyrion about the about Tysha about who she actually was. So Jamie thinks maybe maybe Tyrion knows and is taking revenge for that, but that's. Just just, that's just Jamie's guilty conscience <laughs> being a step ahead of him. Yeah, we'll save the discussion for all that when we get to, uh, I guess, the last Tyrion chapter, really. Uh-huh. Um, but it is kind of fascinating to compare the two lies that Jamie unburdens himself from uh, in this book. The real reason he killed Eris, maybe less a lie and more just a lie by omission. Right, just and then assumed. The actual, uh-huh. And then the actual lie he told Tyrion. And part of his journey in this process, if he is really about that no more lies lifestyle, is probably, you know, coming clean about both of those things. Yeah, good point. Those are those are the the big secrets that that eat at his heart. Uh, Tywin mentions in passing that he is as as a gift for Jamie. Uh, Jamie's like, unless it's a new hand, don't bother. Uh, which is which is pretty ironic given what the gift actually is, which is of course one of the swords, the larger of the two swords that Tywin had uh, made out of ice. A couple Jamie chapters from now. Uh, he in between it must be in between Jamie chapters. He he receives the gift, treats it as an insult, and of course gives the sword to Brienne. And uh, one final bit of foreshadowing groundwork, a lot of stuff set up in this chapter, because again, big pivot point for, for Jamie's story. Tywin tells us more details about what happened at Hall. that when Gregor got there, Varga was pretty much alone. The rest of the Bloody Mummers had abandoned him, but that's not the end of them in the story. They will come up multiple times in A Feast for Crows as they try to escape the war and fail miserably and just get basically get eaten alive by it, which is something I think is a, a really interesting part of A Feast for Crows. Yeah, no, uh, I feel that righteous bloodlust when Brienne takes on Shagwell and uh, the other two assholes that she does. <laughs> Shagwell and his friends. Mm-hmm. So, moving on to theory and discussion, we're going to do something a little bit different this week. We're going to talk about the show's version of the scene. 
Game of Thrones Season 4, Episode 3, Breaker of Chains, featured a very controversial adaptation of Cersei and Jaime's reunion in The Sept. The show was in fact not doing a reunion, as Jaime had returned to King's Landing at the end of the previous season and had several scenes with Cersei prior to the one over Joffrey's corpse. It's fair to say the scene in the show was a swing and a miss from an adaptation standpoint. What was depicted reads as Jamie raping Cersei, and this led to one of the first major controversies surrounding the show, in part because this would be the first such instance or first such controversy occurring after the Red Wedding, where the audience would grow many-fold ahead of season four. Not here to really litigate if it is a rape scene. I feel strongly in my estimation that it was, and people can disagree with that. I do actually want to talk about that moment in pop culture, though, and the discourse around it, because I did feel it was an extremely illuminating moment at the time, and has DNA with some of the more worrisome trends that exist now in the cultural critique space. I think the first thing to say is that the scene seemed to be a genuine fuck-up. Um, if you look at all the interviews at the time between the writers, who I think was our, uh, the writers, the director, who was Alex Graves, and then the actors who were on set, primarily you know Nikolai and Lena, um, they appear to be in different pages. Uh, some said that um, it was clearly a rape scene. I think that was Nikolai's statement, whereas the director had said uh, it started as non-consensual and became consensual over time, which is one of those clumsy phrases that was really lampooned. Um, and that's why I brought up the concept of active consent uh, during our discussion earlier. Um, and I don't, I don't think it was helped at all either by what was going on at Game of Thrones at the time. It already had a reputation of not really being great with its women characters. And uh, the following episodes after Breaker of Chains will feature the Craster's Keep scenes with uh, Carl Tanner or whatever the fuck his name was. Um, mm -hmm. and, they, and there they used rape as set dressing in the background, which was, you know, very obviously just very insensitive and not great. You know, we can argue about the effects of depicting sexual assault. I'm not like purely like you can't have it at all. But I just think the way the show was doing it at this time was not with the most respect um, or the most thoughtful way that we'd prefer to see it done. Um, however, <laughs> uh, the reaction to it, I also felt was a little strange at the time. Um, you know, people love to throw out the word character assassination. Um, it is a very popular term when you talk about adaptation. And, you know, I get it. You know, there are characters sometimes that deliberately or not, you know, creative sometimes go a different way with or have a different interpretation of. Um, and sometimes that, you know, is wildly different from what our own perception of the character is. Um, there were character assassination accusations thrown at Catelyn Stark for her depic depiction in the first three seasons, often because of how much a lot of her, like, monologues tended to focus on Jon Snow, which is really not where her mind was. Um, a lot of it was focused on motherhood when she clearly has a more political uh, strain to her uh, being and thought process process. Um, and then along those lines, there were people who, you know, even take it, took it above character assassination. And they said that the writers, the showrunners, whoever had raped Jamie Lannister, which is just, you know, an odd statement given what was actually happening <laughs> on screen. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think this was a big moment for me to like kind of take a step back because um, I think this was a point where in pop culture we were seeing the integration of more pop psychology and social justice terms, um, both you know both of which have value both in terms of discussing art and the real world. Um, but I think people were getting a little. I don't know, trigger happy with some of this stuff um, and just like really going as far down or as extreme in their rhetoric as possible. And I think the first thing that really struck me is like, 
these aren't real characters. We really have to remember that, and we shouldn't be specifically precious about them. This is something we that would come up again in season five with what happened with Sansa Stark and Ramsay Bolton, and I'm not happy with that adaptation either, but you would see kind of the same, like, protective, like, we must protect this character at all costs that kind of started showing its head here as well. Um, and I think importantly in the process of making art is that you have to allow some grace for mistakes, not that anything is above critique or can't be lambasted for being, you know, potentially dangerous in depiction. I don't think this is that, but um, we do want artists and creatives, people to take swings like this. Um, you know, things that engage with difficult sexual topics are important. I think of the movie The Handmaiden, um, which is, you know, something that kind of steps outside of the bounds of like, American sexuality that exists in pop culture. Um, but those stories help us explore um, all sorts of issues around sexuality, around gender, around class, around how society is organized. It's really helpful in that way. And stories like that can further deepen our understanding of humanity. And a reaction like that we've seen against Game of Thrones um, does give fuel to a more puritanical or sexless media agenda, which is, of course, something we don't want to see either, um, because sex is part of, you know, the, hum the human experience, and we want art to be reflective of the human experience, generally speaking. Um, so um, I think more of the lessons we should take away is it reinforces the need for intimacy coordinators on set or sexual assault consultants, and honestly, just more people of marginalized genders, which include, you know, women um, in these writer's rooms. Uh, and that's not to do a gender essentialism here because uh, men suffer from sexual assault and rape. Um, and, you know, every demographic has something to add to the conversation. But I do think this is kind of, there is some truth to the fact that there was kind of a frat boy feel to a lot of late season Game of Thrones. Um, and I think, you know, some of that feels well-founded at times, especially in the late seasons um, and some of the handling of women characters. But, uh, you know, for all the things that the scene did wrong, and I would say the scene kind of did it wrong, um, it did open my eyes a little more to Cersei's point of view from the books. Um, the show kind of helped me recalibrate how I read the book chapter, and that even though the book kind of reads better on the front of whether this is sexual assault or not, you know, I thought about more. We are only witnessing this through Jamie's eyes. And even when Jamie talks about her protest, that's how he's conceptualizing her protest. And, you know, that might not really be the way that she is protesting. So I think it was just a fuck up, but a fuck up that we could all learn from and grow from instead of go down the we need to, you know, use the most vile terms to talk about the show, the people who make the show, the people who perform in it. Um, and then you could kind of start drawing a straight line from this to some of the more unhinged discourse we would see around season eight of Game of Thrones and even House of the Dragon, which pretty much everyone loved, but you would see some of the kind of team green versus team black discussion devolve into you actually support war crimes and you actually support rape and you actually support this, that or another. And I think, again, it's important that we take a step back, realize these are characters that we want them to engage with this kind of thematic and narrative choices because we can elicit some meaning and get some truth or have important conversations because because of it, um, not to say that all art needs to be didactic in that sense, but I think there was some value in there and that it only is valuable if we actually kind of take it in good faith at some level or at least try to engage with it as art instead of, I don't know, as fans or as stands or as arbiters of what is the best or right interpretation of something. 
Really well said across the board. I think you, you laid out all the different and sometimes contradictory aspects of how conversations like this have played out. I think it's really important to separate what happens to an actor from what happens to a character because one of those is just more important. And I think there can be very sleazy movies and TV shows where everyone was treated with the best respect and everyone was in on what was happening and knew what they were doing and contributed to it. And then I think there are very sexless TV shows and movies where terrible things were happening behind the scenes. And I think people sometimes make a one-to-one comparison that does not hold up. Yeah, none of which is is to say that anything is above critique. And going back to Thrones... What bothers me about some of those scenes is just the the kind of just broy sense of humor running through them. Compared to like the the Asha Carl the maid sex scene in A Dance with Dragons, which starts it's really well written where it starts off with what you think is a rape in progress and then you realize it's role play and a repeated role play for these characters and then the sex scene gets really sweet and intimate and romantic. And so that's an example of something like The Handmaiden that you were talking about of of an artist addressing a really difficult sexual topic in an interesting way, in a way that challenges the reader, makes you aware of your own position, and then makes you kind of reflect on that. And I think that you can see George kind of trying to guide the reader. So that is going to wrap us up for our episode on A Storm of Swords, Jamie 7. Thank you so much for listening. As always, if you want to drop us a rating or review in your podcast app of choice, we really appreciate that. Helps us find new listeners. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where patrons get benefits including exclusive episodes every month and early access to our regular episodes. You can follow us on social media, Twitter, Blue Sky, Instagram, at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, at gmail.com. And you can find me on social media at Poor Quentin. And I'm Manu. You can find me at Manuclear Bomb. I'm going to use this spot to plug a guest episode I did with our friend Kiefer over at Select and Start. Hell yeah. Um, I returned to his podcast to discuss Metal Gear Solid 2 Sons of Liberty. The greatest game ever. It very well might be, and we discussed that specifically. Hell yes. Uh, So uh, that will be dropping, I think, sometime later this month. Um, But I wanted to uh, keep your ears open for that, I guess. Hell yeah. Great podcast. Chloe, a.k.a. Liza Arbor from Girls Gone Canon. uh, has been on. Has Exactly. My roommate. Has been uh, been on there before. Keep us a great guy. So I'm really excited to listen to that. That's excellent. So uh, I wrapped up my Lord of the Rings episodes for patrons, $5 and above patrons, last month. Can check those out on our Patreon. Next up, I'm going to be jumping back into Fever Dream, George R. R. Martin's 1982 vampire novel that we were covering a while back here on the Nauticast. Got seven or so chapters to go in that, so starting in December, I'll be jumping back into those on a monthly basis. Uh, I'm just about to wrap up my coverage of the first Star Wars movie and our ongoing Star Wars coverage. Be wrapping up that first Star Wars movie later this month, and then and then in December, moving on to everyone's favorite Empire Strikes Back. So. New, uh, new movie and new book to be covered here on the Nauticast in December. But next time in the Song of Ice and Fire, we finally, finally leave King's Landing to check in on what's happening across the bay in Dragonstone, as Davos wraps up his story in this book by putting his new promotion and his life on the line to what else? Save the children. It seems like everyone's either trying to save them or kill them. Or have sex on top of their dead bodies. Either way. <laughs> the three genders. <laughs> save the children, sure kill the children, fuck near the dead children. <laughs> only really, only really one good option there, unfortunately. So uh, thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time in A Song of Ice and Fire for A Storm of Swords, Davos 6.